I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. Hi, everyone. We have a really fun guest for today's podcast. I'm really excited. We have dietitian Hope Hayes. And Hope has so many wonderful things to share with us. We have a great conversation. One of the things that I love about interviewing all of these unbelievable people is there there are things that I forgot that I experienced in my eating disorder. And when I have these conversations, I get reminded of some of the suffering that I experienced. And it's actually good for me to remember these things because it then allows me to appreciate where I am today in my life, on my journey, on my path. One of the things we talk about is Hope and I were saying that on a scale of one to 10, it's really great to be a five or a six, meaning being okay is a great place to be. Hope talks about when she was in her eating disorder, she was either one or 10, a one or 10, one or 10, oscillated between the two. And I forgot how much those intense mood swings paralyzed me, also affected all the people that were in my life, and that it was uncomfortable. There was never a neutral day. It was always the depth of a one or the high of a 10, which usually was fueled by like diet pills or, you know, my eating disorder. And so, We just touch on that for a moment, but it was just such a reminder of how being balanced is such a great place to be. We also talk about the fact that for people struggling with eating disorders, their behaviors are what they're using for communication. By the way, never get your needs met when you use behaviors for communication because all that gets attended to are the behaviors. Nothing gets touched about what you're feeling emotionally because people are so concerned about the behaviors. So you still go without getting your needs met. We talk about so many other things in this episode. It's just really fun. So I am just going to get us going and here we go. So I hope everybody enjoys. Okay, let's get started. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk 
with Recovered Professionals. I am honored to be sitting here today with a dear colleague, Hope Hayes. Hope is a dietitian and she has so much to share with us. Hope, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is such an honor. I'm thrilled to have you. Hope, can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? And then we'll jump into some questions for the podcast. Sure, absolutely. Um, So yeah, I am a non-diet eating disorder dietitian in New Hampshire. And I own Nourishing New Hampshire, which is a private practice dedicated to eating disorder recovery. Um, it's weight inclusive. I use the health at every size principles. I integrate intuitive eating. Um, and most recently have added some, um, you know, using more of like a trauma informed lens when working with my clients and a little bit of a somatic piece, but I, I am still in a training phase. So I'm careful as to how to integrate some of that, but um, it allows for it to feel more like a safe space to talk about how they're feeling. And then of course, like how that's interacting with the eating disorder. Um, And for my own, my own self as a a clinician in recovery, I really love the, the somatic piece. It feels really helpful. So often clients are on one end of the spectrum or the other very rarely when they're in their eating disorder, are they in the middle? Meaning they're either hyper-focused on their body. So they feel everything like a sip of water. I remember when I was in my eating disorder, if I drank something, I felt the way my pants felt around me. Or they are so cut off from their body. They feel nothing. So I love that you bring that in. By the way, is this something that you're doing from your own experience of either not feeling your body when you were in your eating disorder or feeling too much? Or is it something that you've noticed with a lot of clients, which is why you're starting this training, which is wonderful? Yeah, it's definitely been the latter. More uh, in my professional experience, I was... I was feeling like there was a little bit of a disconnect and when clients were talking about, you know, the way that they were feeling in their eating disorder and it just felt like there was this body disconnection. And we know too from, you know, whether it's an eating disorder or dieting, the brain and the body are disconnected. And so this just felt like a way, a neutral way to try to bring in some um, like recognition of where their body is in that moment. And, and in really, I really aim for like the most neutral of ways and always ask for consent if they're interested in even talking about it to again, allow for that safe space to be present in our, um, in our sessions. But, you know, things like, do you, you know, are, how's your, the way that you're sitting? Uh, do you need to go to the bathroom? How's, how's your breathing? How's your heart rate? I'll ask clients about their heart rate quite often, especially now that we're virtual, you know, we're talking about something and I can sort of see their, their eyes moving a little bit differently or, you know, I'll just check in like, where's your heart at right now? Um, where's their footing, you know, just to bring in some gentle, uh, awareness to how, they are in that moment. Um, and often clients will say like, my heart is racing. My, my shoulders are kind of, you know, tight or they can feel it in their jaw. Um, and to talk about, you know, 
would it be comfortable for you? Would you be interested in talking about like pulling those shoulders down, you know, kind of massaging your, your jaw a little bit, putting your feet on the floor, uh, focusing on your breathing a little bit more. Um, so just to give them a little bit of like, ah, like relaxation to be able to be present in their sessions so that they can talk about the hard things and maybe not in that session, they'll talk about the hard things, but to allow them, you know, to have this relationship with me, that it's this safe opportunity to, to work on healing. I would also imagine all of those techniques are fantastic well, I say I imagine, I know because I, I use these techniques with clients, especially when I worked at residential and I would sit and eat with them. And I know that all these techniques, when you see clients walking into the dining room, regardless of what their eating disorder is, whether it's you know anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, whatever it is, they tense up. You can tell that their jaws are tense, their shoulders are up. Sometimes I can say, I need you to just put your fork down and breathe because I don't think you're breathing. So these are such wonderful things to help clients. And I also like to use it as sort of like a, like a framework or even like a ladder. I imagine kind of like it being a ladder into intuitive eating, you know, for them to intuitively be taking care of their body. And the first step is some of that awareness. I feel that I need to, I always use that. I have to go pee <laughs> just because it's one that they often are pretty neutral about. And, you know, it's this intuition of like, I notice the sensation and I, you know, now I respond to it respectfully for my body. Um, and then, you know, later on in our work, I know, you know, how is hunger showing up for me? I'm noticing hunger. How do I respectfully respond to that within my body? Um, so it can, it ends up that the language is sort of transferable when we're using it somatically to take care of their, you know, the way that they're sitting, their posture, their any sensations within their body, but we can also transfer that language into the therapeutic work around hunger, nutrition, what are their needs right now? Um, and it can feel somewhat seamless in, in just sort of moving through that. I want to, if it's okay, I, I love this conversation. I also want to switch gears a little bit though, Hope, I adore you, and I want to talk a little bit about you and your experience. One of the things that you and I talked about on the phone a few weeks ago, and you wrote it in your paperwork, is what recovery means to you and what it means for you to be flexible and compassionate in your recovery. Can you speak to that? Yeah, of course. I, yeah, because we had talked about recovery versus being recovered. And for me, it, it, it might not align, you know, this way for others. Um, so it's not language that I am pushy. You know, it's not an, an agenda that I have that you must use a recovery versus recovered. But to me, recovered feels like there's this endpoint of like, okay, I'm recovered. And I don't necessarily like even know what that means for me. Um, and I don't think it's a bad thing that if someone is recovered, it, that's how they're, you know, they're connecting it um, for themselves. That's their experience. But for me, 
in recovery allows me to be a person and allows me to be a human. And, you know, sometimes, you know, my body is much more distracting than I want it to be. And if I am recovered, is that, am I still allowed to notice those things? And, um, I say aloud sort of with, uh, quotes there. Um, it just made it, it almost felt like I'm supposed to always walk this line of being recovered where I've got all my shit together, um, around, you know, having a body and body image and, um, food and hunger and fullness and have my emotions all in check. Like it just felt like it needed to be much more concrete and like life's messy and, you know, some days my body's distracting and uh, some days I eat because of my emotions and some days I don't want to move at all. And I don't want any of how I'm finding to live in my body to be defining of where I'm at in my recovery because behavior free, I, you know, I've been behavior free for over 10 years, but I still have a body and I still live in this culture and it's freaking hard. Yeah. So and this is why I love getting different people's perspectives. It's so much fun. I, oh, I just said that really loud, everybody. I'm so sorry. I had a lot of energy with that. I do view myself as fully recovered. And by the way, just like you said, it is unique to everyone. In my definition of being fully recovered, and I apologize for, for listeners who've heard this like a thousand times. I, I Sometimes I say the same things. I definitely wake up some mornings and go, what the fuck happened to my body last night? This is not the same body that I fell asleep in. That doesn't mean for me, and this is for me, Hope, that doesn't mean I'm not recovered. That means, like you said, I'm a human being in this world. But I have the tools to say, first of all, doesn't matter. Get your clothes on. You're going to work. Yeah. Eat your breakfast. Your breakfast. You're still going out with your friends tonight for dinner. It doesn't define your worth. I also know enough to usually ask myself a few questions. Am I overtired? Because I get a little bit more self-critical when I'm overtired. Am I, am I anxious? That for me is the difference. I also want to say I've been recovered for over 20 years. And so maybe that's another thing. And I was very much aware as I moved through the process that ending behaviors, just the beginning. I had so much work to do on myself. And it's part of the reason for the podcast. Life is really messy. That's okay though. Feel it, honor it, navigate through it. And there's no behavior in the world that is going to clean up that mess. It will add to it. Yeah. I love what you said about the, you know, just sort of just ending the behaviors. That was sort of how recovery was framed to me at the beginning. Um, I had a sort of attempted recovery a couple of times before I really kind of figured out where I needed to go. And one of the first times that I was connecting with a therapist and it, it just felt really framed as, you know, you just have to stop these behaviors. And I, it, and, and I, I remember just being like, but then what? <laughs> like, 
then what? And so now I look back and I think like, gosh, in hindsight, and I don't say this flippantly because it's, it's so hard, such brave work that our clients are doing, but it almost feels like stopping and containing those behaviors was almost like the easiest, you know, and not, and not like that the work ahead was so hard, but it was just, it was slower. It was much more insightful. I had to use a lot of self-compassion that that was very foreign to me. Um, and I had to really kind of show up for myself and find ways to take care of my feelings and nurture myself. And, you know, so that was what felt like that was the work. So it was like, oh, it's just getting through those behaviors. And then I, I was like, but wait, so much more happened after. What that reminds me of when you say, and I agree with you, not invalidating, like, oh, the behavior cessation, sorry, I can't get the word right. That's the easy part, not invalidating that. To everybody out there, Hope and I are painfully aware of how difficult it is to stop behaviors. But what you said reminds me of what the quote I have on my website, which is, I was never afraid of dying from an eating disorder. I was afraid to live in the world without one. That's not about the behaviors. It's about what I, the, the myth of what I had, of what, the, of what the eating disorder was protecting me from. And so this is also why when insurance companies pull clients out of treatment because their behaviors have stopped. This is why we keep getting this revolving door of treatments. That's just the beginning. To then ask them to be back out in the world with not enough insight or awareness, not enough skills, not enough support. We took away their coping skill. Took away their coping skill. And listeners have heard me say this before too. This is when clients feel it's their fault supports blame them. Why can't you do this? Well, you're kind of set up to fail when you get taken out of treatment prematurely. I couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. Um, there was something you had just said. Um, let me think. And I do this all the time, Hope, so don't worry. I always say to listeners, um, I'll get, I'll remember it. Oh, I, I remember. I remember. See? It was, it was this piece of the, um, you know, behavior is communication, right? So to your quote where I couldn't, you know, not living, I was afraid of living in a life without the eating disorder. You know, this, the eating disorder is this coping skill. It is protecting. It is, you know, and I talk about it with clients all the time that we can hold a special place with compassion around what this eating disorder has provided us. Um, and at the same time, learn to push ourselves in, in ways to find other ways to take care of ourselves so that we can slowly move away from needing it. Um, but it's not just this stop the behaviors and like you're cured. You know, it's you got to figure out what what was that protecting and how else can I nurture myself where that eating disorder was taking place. Um, and and that, that behavior that the person is using, it's communication that something is disrupted and it needs support, not just stop this. Do you remember for you, what was the most difficult part of the recovery process? Hmm. I think for me, the most challenging piece 
was navigating the entanglement of my self-worth with a, with a physical look and a perfectionistic piece. That is not anything that people haven't talked about before. Um, for me, it was, it definitely fulfilled this sort of biopsychosocial model. Um, it, it was, yeah, just this messy entanglement where I had over time, you know, the brain pathway for me was you need to look this way. You need to look this way on paper, right? Physically look this way, look this way on paper, be this kind of a student, be all of these things. And then you deserve your space. You deserve your validation. And untangling that was hard work. It's still some days challenging to remember, like, it's okay to sit in this mess. It's okay to not be perfect. And actually often I tell myself and I tell my son, who's eight, um, you don't even have to do your best. Sometimes you just have to do what you can do. And, and I have to really embody that too. Um, so that, I, th- I think that's the hard, it has been the hardest and some days still can be a little bit of a challenge. Yeah. I think for me, going back to the quote I have on my website, it was that. It was walking through feeling, walking through the world feeling very, spiritually and emotionally exposed. I had to walk through all those fears of, I don't fit in. What do people think of me? I have a lot of anxiety, blah, blah. All of the things, low self-esteem, I'm depressed. I don't, I don't seem to connect with people. I, for me, that was the hardest part. That, that was the longest part, I think. That took years. By the way, it's also still a journey in process. There are days when I don't feel good enough or I I don't feel the best about my that's part of the journey. That's life. That's that's life ongoing. What do you think was the hardest thought for you to let go of? Do you remember? I think it would be around uh not being good enough. Um, And it was a way that my internal critic could show up in any situation. So it was hard to push back because it kind of always showed up, you know, good enough in school, good enough friend, good enough coworker, good enough this, that, and the other thing. You could be better. You should be better. Look at them. You know, and really being able to keep my feet like firmly on the ground and say like, I am okay just the way that I am. And often I don't push myself to be more than okay. I like being okay. It feels there's something really welcoming for myself about just being okay in the way that I'm showing up. Um, so that, that I think was, it, it still can be a challenge, but it was probably one of the biggest. And I think people that are looking towards the recovery process, they again have this misconception that recovered is always feeling fantastic. Feeling neutral and balanced is beautiful. I love balanced days. Nothing makes me happier. It also allows me to really enjoy when I've excelled at something. When I am really excited about something, it also lets me know when I'm really depressed and I really need to reach out for support. I love that. 
I was just going to say, it feels real. There's a lot of days where, you know, I think of on a scale of one to 10, like I'm like a five, you know, and five feels good. And there were times in my life where it was like one ten, one ten, right? Like up and down. I feel terrible, my lowest. And I was like, oh my gosh, I feel great. And those, the the shifting between those emotions and, and, and being in that space and how I was relating to myself, it was so fleeting. It, I never felt grounded. And so being, you know, five, six, like there's joy and happiness. And I feel, I feel that balance. And also like when I'm a little bit lower, it's okay. I know what I need to do. Here's my tools. And then I take the days that are a little bit better with, you know, with grace. That's nice. But that those are more temporary and that just being okay is a great place to be. And I talk a lot about that with clients because they do, they show up with this idea that, okay, well, by the time I'm done with, you know, doing all my work, I've got to love my body and be positive, all, you know, la, 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 all the things, right. That we kind of see in social media. Um, and, and I try to, you know, just give some, just to talk about the idea of like, what would it be to just be okay? Because also from where they're at to go, where they're thinking they need to go is so, it is such a leap that often I think that's overwhelming. I'm like, what if we just kind of go to a place where you're okay? You wake up and you, you just feel okay. Often a lot of them are like, yes, yes, please. Sometimes I say, and it's similar to just being okay. I say, can we just get you to stop hating your body? Can I, can we get you to a place where you're not harming your body? You're right. Everyone has this idea of like, when am I going to love my body? I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I cannot predict that. There was something now I was going to ask you and it totally escaped me. We were talking about, give me a minute. I know. See, I knew it would happen. Where do we even begin with the conversation of social media, advertising, things like that? (laughs) I feel like I am 50% dietitian and 50% media literacy person. Um, I've been using sort of one idea with a couple of my adolescent clients, just having them to bring, you know, bring some awareness in how were you feeling before you were in social media and how did you feel when you closed the app or, you know, and just set for them to kind of check in with themselves. Um, use some, you know, have that autonomy piece of like, you can, you absolutely can do this. Just check in with yourself and how it's making you feel. Um, and that's been interesting. There's, they're noticing the comparisons. They're also noticing um, more diet culture where they thought was what they should be doing, right? D- different ways that they should look or different things that they should be eating. They're noticing, you know, we talk about putting on our diet uh, culture lens, you know, our, our glasses and noticing if they're showing their body, if they're showing beautiful, perfect plates, if they're saying what you should be doing or push yourself, you know, I often invite them to look at that as like diet culture. I am so, I I don't mean sensitive, like in a negative way. I'm so, or maybe hypersensitive to what I see on TV, which is traditional stereotypes where well, first of all, I'm a big TV watcher, so <laughs> I watch a lot of TV. 
you will often see characters in TV shows or movies or whatnot. Oh, it makes me crazy doing the stereotypical. There's, you know, two people sitting down having, if it's all women, they're all eating salads. Or if it's a man and a woman, the man's eating a burger and the woman's eating a salad. And I think, come on, are you kidding me? We are inundated by it and don't even realize it. I just notice it, I think, because of our profession. I'm just very aware of things like that. We are inundated by these messages and don't realize they're being thrust upon us 24-7. Yeah. And around that food piece too, I have clients worried that they're eating too more than their partners, that their bodies are too big in in comparison to their partners. So it's beyond just it being even you know, one piece of this is the food piece and noticing that they're eating salads and their partners are having burgers or whatever, that translates into a bigger conversation of, but if I have that, if my body's bigger, and it's, it's like this tornado of worry of how they're going to be perceived, but also how to nourish their body. It's, it's really complicated to diffuse and sort of disentangle that for them with them, not for them, but with them. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel in your experience that regardless of how long somebody has struggled for, that they can fully recover? I do. I I think the thing to be cautious about is what we want versus what might be realistic for that person. Um, Of course, I want all of my clients to be able to live a life that is fully theirs and their, uh, you know, whatever that is for them, that they're able to be their authentic selves and, and move forward and, um, feel fulfilled. Um, but what I want and what is possible is sometimes different things. And so, you know, depending on how long they've struggled, what type of eating disorder they have, what they've endured in their life, trauma or not, um, you know, there's so many, I think, pieces as to what they might be okay with, you know, where they were to, you know, then to where they are now might be their place of recovery or recovered. And that might be great for them. Also access to care, support, you know, support of family, friends, all of that matters too. So I want everyone to get to a place where they feel like they're better than where they had been before. Um, but I do also want to respect like what that that can look different for everybody. That leads me to ask, what do you think is the benefits of working with a recovered professional? And the reason why I said this makes me think of working with a recovered professional is there was something that you said that made me think, oh, I want to, I want to comment on this. I have to remember, well, I don't have to, like I always do remember that what I want for the client is not necessarily what the client wants. Or is ready for. Or is ready for. You're right. So how I define recovery might not be the client's definition. And I have to meet them where they're at. By the way, it's our job, Hope, if we feel like we can compassionately nudge them a little more. But again, 
I have to separate what being recovered to me means as opposed to the clients. So what are your thoughts about working clients working with recovered professionals? I I think it is a beautiful opportunity for there to be this shared relatedness, connectivity, um, a sense of belonging. I I, you know, am very open that I am a, um, a clinician in recovery that, um, and, and, and I don't give any more detail other than that, but as a, as an opportunity to share a space with and hold a space with somebody else who is, you know, maybe our struggles are, have been different, are different, but that there is a connectivity in that struggle, um, a sense of belonging always was just always something like, I think in a lot of my earlier years, I didn't always know where I belonged emotionally and having a clinician who struggled in similar ways or who could say like, I do really understand what you're saying helped me to feel a sense of belonging. Like I'm not, you know, cause people aren't talking about it that much. Um, like with a lot of mental health um, concerns and, and issues, people aren't talking about it as much. So you don't know who's struggling. And and then also our world is kind of like an eating disorder. So we're trying to like recover into this really bizarre culture that's also like, but only have salad. Um, so having a, a clinician that has gone through the process and is is stable, that can show up and hold space with that person and, and nudge them compassionately um, and also have this shared connectivity. I think it's beautiful opportunity for a person to feel validated and, <clears throat> excuse me, um, heal. I love it. I feel tr- like so honored. I do too. I feel honored to sit with my clients and, you know, and I will say to them at times, I will never assume because I had an eating disorder and you have an eating disorder that we have the same experiences, the same emotional thought process around it, but there is some part of it that I can understand. Right. Exactly. I, I know this is, again, I feel like I keep being like, let's take another shift, but hope I want to take another shift. How do you, in your practice, work with clients. I, I'll, I'll, I'll start again, meaning I would have clients that would come into my office and say, I want to work with a dietitian who will, you know, you know, teach me how to do intuitive eating. And I say, when you're ready, the, you and the dietitian will talk about intuitive eating for now though, you need the structure of some kind of a meal plan. What are your thoughts? Intuitive eating, I know for me, was farther along in my recovery process. In fact, I don't even think there was the, the term back then. But, you know, what? Are, how do you explain intuitive eating with your clients? What do you do when your clients want it? It's premature, things like that. Um, so I like to talk about it um, and and fellow dietitians that are listening will, I'm sure will align to this, but um, that we've, we were all born intuitive eaters and that it's there within us and that it gets, you know, kind of lost in the shuffle or we become disconnected from it through dieting or eating disorders, um, trauma. 
And so our, our work is to find it. And our work is to figure out how to, how do I nourish myself consistently and adequately and frequently with foods that I like, what, you know, that I have access to, to start to, you know, to learn how to take care of myself that way. And, and, and I tell them that is intuitive eating where we're taking a gentle, but thoughtful look at how can I nourish myself to the best of my ability right now in hopes of getting to a place where I will think less about food and what I need and how much of it and, and all of that. Um, so I try to just keep it this very gentle, this very gentle, um, process for them. And I, I don't love to, I don't, I don't use meal plans, but we definitely talk about structure, meal, snack, meal, snack, meal, snack. And then we talk a lot about what are the foods you like? What are the foods that you like that maybe you're afraid of? What are the foods that you have access to? That's a big conversation, um, especially this year because food you know, accessibility has changed for a lot of folks. Um, so trying to really have this an individualized way that they can, you know, have this, I, I build off self-determination theory, the autonomy, the education, and then I'm supporting them with that. So, how, you know, what is, what is, um, what do you have access to? What are the things that you like? Um, how can I support you? And here's the education piece that this is why we need to do this. Um, and over time, you know, we continue to talk about how does hunger show up for you? How does fullness show up for you? What about satisfaction? How do you feel if you've not had enough? If you've eaten past the point of comfortable, you know, what, how does this all show up for you? And so it's more of a gentle approach. Um, that's sort of one way. Otherwise, people come in and they're like, I've got the book and I want, I want to go through these principles. Um, and that's fine too. I find there's far less of that and much more of the meeting them where they're at with, you know, making sure that they're getting adequacy within their nutrition um, and, and sort of moving on from that point. Well, I want to add, I also view intuitive eating is not just eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full, but also eating because the food is fantastic and it's okay to be a little bit, to be beyond fullness or it's okay to be, you know, watching a movie and eating whatever's in front. Normalizing that. Yes, that's also intuitive eating. When I walk into, I'm just going to use Thanksgiving for an example. When I walk into my aunt's house and I smell all of that food, I, I devour it. And, and I'm not saying, and forgive me, I don't want to just use a holiday. That, that feels a little bit like where I'm like, only on holidays. I am not saying that at all. I'm just saying, when I walk into a friend's house and I smell anything, I'm like, oh, I didn't think I was hungry, but man, I want that. Yeah. Or it's like going out to dinner and then going to the movies and still having popcorn because it tastes so good. It's into, you know, intuitive eating is eating, eating, you know, Yes, sort of the foundation is making sure that we're getting enough and our, you know, our body is, is getting all the nutrition that, that it needs for, for physiological functioning and all of that, but that this additional layer of 
food. And it gets so pathologized in our culture that like we shouldn't be eating more than we're hungry and definitely stopping when we're full. But know that like it's a beautiful thing to to have connections with food and and having connections with the people that we're eating. And it doesn't have to be about hunger and fullness. Sometimes it is. And sometimes it's more just like, oh, I have to quickly gobble up this sandwich and whatever else, because I have a client in 10 minutes, um, you know, and that's intuitive eating too. And that was what I was going to say a few minutes ago was about your question about premature, you know, sort of wanting clients wanting intuitive eating sort of prematurely. I forget who put out the guideline, but some treatment center put out a guideline a while ago um, that actually showed the different principles for, they, they did anorexia and they did bulimia, and they showed how you can um, integrate the principles when people um, might be dealing with you know, say somebody who has bulimia, um, they are in a treatment center, but how you can actually integrate some of those principles in, it's a shift in the language a little bit. Um, you know, so I forget, I can find it. And if you wanted to link to it or something, you can, but it's still, I think it can be a conversation from the get-go because if somebody also feels goal oriented to it, then we also want to use it as like a motivation to get them through this process and intuitive eating can feel like, I don't mean get them through the process fast, but I mean get them through like the meal plan consistency eating piece to where they can feel more, you know, like they have more um, autonomy over their own nutrition choices and things like that. What do you think is a, and, and I don't normally be like, can you name a book that's good for everybody? But are you talking about intuitive eating written by Elise Rush? And I, for, oh my goodness, forgive me. Evelyn, Evelyn Triboli. Thank you. Thank you. I, I totally, is, is, is that the book that you're talking, that you're referring to? Because I'm sure a lot of people are like, how do I get my hand on these principles? And, and I also want to caution everybody not everybody's ready for it. So again, I want to be careful with that. Yeah. Yeah. The book, the book is Intuitive Eating um, by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Rush. And um, I love the way that the book is designed. There's a lot of really great information research-based at the beginning. And then there's this set of principles and the principles are great. They're not steps. They're not, I have to do this before I can do this. And then I do that. It's more, you know, so to not overwhelm clients, I'll often say, you know, you're welcome to start reading it at the very beginning if you'd like to. Otherwise, just peruse through and kind of see what do any of these principles even jump out at you. Or if that feels overwhelming, there's lots of really great um, uh, one-page you know, principles that you can print out. There's a bunch of dietitians that printed out some really beautiful ones. Um, but it's just on one page. So they can just literally see the names of these principles and like maybe a sentence or two about what they mean. And often the food and emotions, the hunger, the hunger and, um, I'm forgetting the exact terminology because I'm babbling about it so much, but there's one in particular, the, the emotions that people go, yes, that one. And just how messy that that one can feel for people. So sometimes we just start there and just kind of talk about what that feels like for them. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do you know what the principles are? Like, could you name them? Off the top of my head, no, I never can. But my short-term memory is not good. <laughs> but I have, I have them... Um, I have the book and I have them in my computer as just that printout for clients. 
Um, the food police, the honor, the hunger. I mean, there's the, yeah, the gentle nutrition one. Um, but yeah, no, I never remember them. That's okay. People, people ask me questions all the time about stuff and things that you would, you would absolutely expect me to know. And I'm like, I have no idea, but then I always say, let's try to find it together. Exactly. It's a scavenger hunt. It's a, it's, it's community building. We're going to try to find it together. So I want to be very aware of the time because as, as um, listeners do not know, you have a client in a few minutes. So I want to make sure that we start sort of bringing this down a little bit, but before before we end, Hope, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd want to talk about, or is there anything that you want to share? Mm, that's such a nice question. Um, I think the sort of my lasting thought for our conversation would just be around that as you know, dietitians doing this work. I heard uh, Christy Harrison. I, I listen to her podcast often and she had Amy Pershing and Judith Matz on a couple of weeks ago and they were talking about, you know, if you treat eating disorders, you treat trauma. And so for, you know, to really be pushing um, generally as, as clinicians can do some of the work around having that trauma informed um, uh, trauma informed lens, not trauma focused, you know, we're not therapists, but but to be able to be more aware of our language that we're using about consent and how we're showing up for our clients, the spaces that we're offering, even virtually, or spaces that we're still showing up with them, you know, it still matters that we're, you know, calm and, and gentle, um, using a lot of self-compassion. And like what you and I talked about earlier, that what we want for them and where they're at might be different places. And to let that be okay. At the beginning of my career, I definitely was like, we're, we're doing this. I'm going to have all these people recovered, you know, and that's all of us, I think, kind of think that. And that over time, it's like, that's not actually what's so important anymore about getting them recovered, but more of like moving them forward in their process, helping them to find some more peace and healing and grace for themselves. Um, but I do really feel like that trauma piece is super important so that we're able to really show up for our clients in a safe and secure way for them. I absolutely agree with that. So before we fully end, I don't know if you remember, but I do have one final question. Okay. And Hope, my final question for you is, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what oh gosh. would it say? I did not read the question right. <laughs> How did you read the question? What would you write for someone on a bathroom stall? <laughs> you know what, Hope? We're going to answer it that way. Today, Hope Hayes, what would you write <laughs> about someone on a bathroom stall? It's like an election season. My brain's like somewhere else. Um, I would write, you matter. That's all I would write, Period. Just that's what I, I think sometimes it's just not sometimes I think all the time people can hear that like you matter you you might not feel it you might not identify or connect with it but you do and there's just something about that that feels really important to me it I, I felt that in my heart and in my chest when you said that and and I do think it's a message that everybody every person every human being 
needs to hear. And my hope is that they can at some point internalize it. And maybe write it on a bathroom stall. <laughs> and write it on a bathroom stall. I like this idea of, of turning the question around a little bit. Hope you just... I can't name the principles and I'm, I'm reading questions wrong. <laughs> <laughs> COVID too. I've got all these excuses. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's what makes us human. So... Yeah, exactly. Hope from the bottom of my heart, I really, really want to thank you for being a part of this podcast. Thank you so much, Karen. This is such a delight. I feel so honored. Well, I'm honored to have you on and I'm honored to work with you because you and I share clients and it, 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 is, it is a great team that you and I make. So just wanted to say that on the podcast. I agree. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to talking with each and every one of you next week. Stay safe. Bye-bye. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week. <laughs>